0: It's 6 o'clock in London, it's 1pm in New York, enjoy your lunch, 1am in Hong Kong, have a good night's sleep, 3am in Sydney, 10am in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon and good evening, depending on where you are in the world. The IPO vid livestream series 5 episode 6 goes live now with me, Patrick L. Young. This is episode 30. The S&P 500 enjoyed its best ever month since November during the course of April. Meanwhile, so far in the US quarterly results season, Q1 has been a stonking success. 87% of companies have beaten analyst estimates. Usually, that runs around 65%. Moreover, usually, the average beat is about 3.6%. In this incredible quarter, the overperformance from analysts' expectations, according to the Wall Street Journal, is a whopping 22.7%. Now, that's placing companies on track for their largest earnings growth spurt since 2010. Of course, now the billion-dollar Bitcoin question is... Just how much of this is priced in after, of course, that record 21% surge in March U.S. household income reported last Friday. And news that during the course of the past month, U.S. households are allocating up to 41% of their assets into the stock market. There's clearly a few grounds for debate, therefore, computer chips are in short supply, meaning if you like VWs, well, it may be time to buy yourself an old Beetle, or, indeed, possibly a Golf Mark I GTI. The newfangled production is proving somewhat tricky in a computerised age because of supply chains, likewise there are all sorts of other supply chain struggles, and we're not talking about the chimera of Ever Given and its handbrake turn in the Suez Canal a few weeks back, that was just a temporary blip. Rather. PVC, plastics, those are the new shortage. Rather than how they were in that old uh, famous movie from the 1960s, The Graduate, they're now in short supply all round. They're looking a bit like the new gold as demand outstrips any coherent supply, for instance. Of course, now we're also decently green, we don't have to worry about oil prices continuing to, oh, hold on a second, $64 a bottle? Well, while we're talking about barrels of oil, dropped by the national, the newspaper of Abu Dhabi, the UAE's uh, voice in many ways, shapes and forms, the national newspaper, to read my latest opinion piece discussing the miracle of Murban. That's Murban Futures, of course. A new futures exchange, IFAD, as we discussed here before, Ice Futures Abu Dhabi, was opened in partnership with Adnok on March the 29th. And ever since, it's been clear that a futures star has been born. The third benchmark looks to be on its way, that's Murban alongside Brent and West Texas Intermediate. Or indeed, as I said in that article in the national newspaper, the island of excellence emerging around Murban Futures in the heart of ADGM. An island of excellence is emerging around Murban Futures at IFAD. And that was before we got the statistics. 142,000 contracts in month one. Put that in perspective. If the thing had been doing even a thousand contracts a day, people would have been shouting it from the rooftops just a few years ago. This is a truly special launch. Meanwhile, plaudits to NASDAQ, who celebrated a fabulous 51 new listings across their various stock markets during the month of April. Once upon a time not so long ago, the best exchanges in the world managed 50 new listings in a year. Elsewhere, is it a top of bull market sign once again? Yahoo and AOL have changed ownership, albeit this time they've been sold for a joint handful of billions for the pair, as opposed to the $351 billion market capitalization they collectively peaked at in December 1989 during mm-hmm. the hype dot-com mm-hmm. bubble. All this and more, much more, has already been covered in greater detail in Exchange Invest Daily, the unique newsletter of the Borse business. If you'd like to start a 30-day free trial, email me, hit me up on social media, wherever you're watching this show, and we'll organize for you a suitable trial so we can get you better signed up to understand the water cool of the bourse business, what's happening in the exchange business every day. Our guest today, ladies and gentlemen, is Max Ganado. The topic, innovating financial law through the blockchain, is... The only way we can manage to compress his incredible 40-year career into four words, because truly he has been innovating all the way along. As I said in my profile that I published in Exchange Invest this week, Max Ganado is a semi-mythical figure in Maltese law. Maltese commercial law, his widespread description as a visionary, hardly does him justice. Beginning as a maritime lawyer, Max hugely developed the financial services practice at the company that he was a co-founder of, Ganado Advocates, the blue ribbon law firm in the island state. Max has been heavily involved in the drafting of new legislation required for the development of Malta as a financial centre, including the revision of the law relating to trusts, the law on legal persons and foundations, as well as on netting, securitisation, Aviation and, of course, that huge elephant in the room, distributed ledger technology. Max was the managing partner of Ganado Advocates for six years, and he officially retired from the firm in December 2020, becoming a consultant to Ganado Advocates. As Chambers Fintech Legal noted in 2020 of Max. He has a curious and inquisitive mind and is fascinated about new legal challenges he's quick on understanding the key issues and can go into action quickly as a result max was an early adopter as i said before of distributed ledger technology and he remains a key thinker around that whole dlt legal arena max good evening it's lovely to see you where in the world are you joining us from this evening well uh, i'm in malta (laughs) And uh, enjoying my
1: retirement now that I don't have to, you know, just spend hours and hours going through files and deadlines and so on. So, you know, that's that's where I am.
0: Fabulous. and so, joy you could join us this evening. It's really lovely to see you. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background, because you were born into a legal family.
1: Uh, yes, um, I'm a fourth generation lawyer now and... Uh, Highly biased towards the law in the sense that you know it was almost assumed that I would I would become a lawyer as I as I grow older. Um, my father was a professor of civil law and spent uh, a good fifty or sixty years literally teaching at university, practically until he passed away. But it's uh, it, it's been you know something which which has obviously marked you know the, the way of thinking, the way of of, of dealing with things in our lives you know it was unavoidable I think I mean looking at it with hindsight it was clearly unavoidable although at the time I as a young, as a young person I, I probably resisted some of that idea I probably would prefer to be an architect if I had to choose you know in terms of design and 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 structure but you know to be fair I've, I've had my uh, fair share of enjoying designing solutions in
0: the law. So designing solutions in the law, because this is something that you're very interested in. I mean, the whole nature of law and how effectively it develops going forward.
1: Yes, um, it, it, it's clear that most people think of law as something of an imposition. Um, you know, what you can do and you can't. Um, and and that that gives the impression that law, law is something that stops things happening. It's always a threat. It's, it's uh, you know, something that impedes freedom of action. My view of law has always been that it is an enabler. Um, it, it can actually inspire behavior. Now, obviously, which part of the law are we talking about? And, and I've always worked in commercial law. And then commercial law in a civil law country tends to rely a lot on civil law, and I naturally had to go broader. But the the whole idea is that law is there to enable um, societies to operate efficiently, uh, honestly, um, you know, in a way that serves the purpose of that particular society and gives opportunities to people in the society to succeed, um, acting within the parameters of basic good behavioural rules and, you know, the, the expected standards of honesty and excellence. So, so I've always seen law as something which, which is the opportunity, uh, It's the tool of opportunity and not something that restricts us in what we can do. And that has inspired me throughout my career in terms of everything I have done practically, finishing up with, with the last project I was
0: involved in with, with DLT and, and blockchain. So that's very interesting. So, I mean, you're very behind the idea of inspiring behaviours to promote the common good. And therefore, that sounds very interesting because, of course, a lot of people are in a much more prescriptive view of the law per se. So, I mean, explain to us, where did Malta come into the legal sort of mix? Because I'm sure a lot of our viewers who are across Europe and across the world won't necessarily know much about the Maltese legal system. Yeah, well, this is
1: one of the... Privileges of being a lawyer, Malta. I suppose. Um, in my experience, I have found that the most exciting discoveries are always where the two legal systems of the world meet and cross over to each other. In other words, where you have English common law um, meeting or overlapping with civil law. And Malta is a civil law country. We inherited the legal system from the Knights of Malta in the in the seventeen sixteen and seventeen hundreds, and it is. It is a sophisticated uh, legal system. It, it's, it's a very old legal system. We probably had one of the first codes on maritime law in the world. <clears throat> now, you know, civil law has a particular style, and it is fairly rigid and and formalistic. Um, on the other hand, English law is much more practical, more driven by, by economic outcomes, and, and is... Is better to work within the commercial field. Now, Malta had the benefit of having both systems dominating us. So we had the the civil law through the Knights and then we had the common law through the English. Um, Except that the English focused on the commercial side, but with the commercial law, we also inherited the public law from the British and also the private international law. Now, commercial law, private international law, uh, put together gives you a very powerful tool and the insights we receive as Maltese lawyers of the English legal system and the common law system as it meets the civil law system are fascinating and And throughout my career I've always found that finding the balance in that space between the two legal systems where they meet is always a ground for innovation and you can pick the innovation of the English law and its system of precedent, where judges continually develop the law to meet the expectations of the society in which they give the judgments on the same basic legal principles, but it's always you know, catching up with society. And then you have the civil law, which is certain, clear, detailed. In other words, not looking at a case, but looking at the whole society. And, and when you have a problem, and you look at both of them together, you really then find the space for innovation where they meet. And that has been so exciting for the last few years, at least the last 40 years I've been working. And um, Malta, as a result, is, is one of the unique systems in the world, which are called mixed legal systems. And that's because you have pillars of English law mixed with pillars of civil law, and they both coexist. And as lawyers, we have to know the elements of both, and understand you know how each operates within within the the sector you're working in. So so this has has been one of the most inspiring elements that I've had the privilege to work in.
0: Fabulous. So so we've got these two systems, common law and civil law. And of course, if you've been watching various of the episodes, you can always catch up with the back issues, of course, on IPO-Vid, the YouTube channel. We know we were talking to Barney Reynolds a few weeks ago about this because he was particularly pushing the common law angle in terms of the UK financial centre in, in relation to Brexit and so on. So, I mean, remind me, the big thing that we're talking about here, if I, if I remember correctly, is, I mean, essentially common law is remarkably effectively creditor-friendly, and the difficulty is that civil law is much more debtor-friendly, and that therefore leads into a lot of issues, doesn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, so that has been the main issue um, in the commercial law, because particularly the banking and financial services law, because if you are a creditor-friendly system, you are likely to encourage uh, risk-taking, and you are likely to encourage Um, the development of law, which is going to enable growth. On the other hand, the debtor friendly system, which is inspired by Roman law, for obvious reasons, because in the time of the Romans, if you didn't pay your debts, you'd you'd become a slave of your creditor. And that was a dangerous thing to to have to deal with. Um, you 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 have trends which make the legal system inefficient, Added to that, you then have a lot of formalities and process and procedure and and so on. So, you know, it is evident that if you look at the global system, you see that the world's financial centers have practically all come from common law legal systems. And uh, the elements that produce the financial innovation and growth have been clearly the creditor-friendly nature of that legal system. Um, The elements of trust, if you want to use trust in a broad and informal sense. In other words, you trust people to do things and take the responsibility of their own risk in their decisions. And then if they breach the rules, they will find an efficient legal system to control what they are doing and punish them. While in the civil law system, you're not allowed to even take the risk because certain transactions are not even permitted. So rather than trust a player in a market to act honestly and efficiently, the common law system, as the common law system does, the civil law system tends to prescribe what you can do and cannot do to keep you on the right side of the law, so to say, by prohibiting certain certain risk-taking. And when you look at the way the two legal systems um, emerged, you find that... You know things like, for instance, security. Um, the power of security in the civil law system is much weaker than the power of security in English law. For instance, self-help isn't allowed in the in the civil law system, and there's a lot of uh, formality through notarial methodologies and registrations in public registries and so on. So, so the liberty to do things and to enforce rights in the in the civil law system is is highly restricted. Now, what we could do in the Maltese legal system is to compare. And, you know, in my particular case, I started as a maritime lawyer. And within a couple of years, the contrast between a, an English law mortgage, which we had introduced into our law for shipping and aviation, and the hypotech which we had as part of our legal system, and most of Europe has, which comes, you know, through the notarial system of public deeds and registration in public registers was so obvious and it became so evident that we could only succeed if we had to accept and absorb certain english law principles into our security interest law and you know that it became it became you know a point of 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 inspiration and that's why i keep on using the word for for me at least as a young lawyer, to promote the ideas I was coming across in, in English security law to, to extend that into the business uh, pillars that we were developing in the, in the 1980s. And that has, has clearly made a major difference because the argument uh, was received positively by various of our politicians throughout the years and the laws have regularly been adjusted in order to reflect the principles that we were seeing operating within the english system which brought about economic efficiency and and growth result and at the end of the line there was the actual absorption and incorporation of the law of trusts into our civil law which was a major major achievement um, which which had its effects and
0: I, I hope i'll be able to explain that a bit later so we're here, ladies and gentlemen, with Max Ganado. Thank you very much, Max. Max, as many of have been, an inspiring legal figure in terms of the development of the Maltese financial centre. We're on maritime law at the moment. If you'd like to, for just a second, I mean, send us a little bit of love, uh, possibly. Give us a like on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you're watching this, LinkedIn perhaps, while we're discussing this fascinating area where we're looking at innovating financial law all the way through to the blockchain itself. And thank you very much, Marianne Madeira. We've got a very nice little bit of love being sent by her. A like on Facebook all the way from the Philippines. Thank you. Um, If you've got a question for Max, anything to do with innovative law all the way through to the blockchain, of course, he was one of the architects of the law on blockchain in Malta, then send us a message. We'll be delighted to ask them. Now, one of the things you mentioned there about shipping, Max, you mentioned about the whole idea of of mortgages and hypotex and so on and how that's different and the hidden trust issues. Of course, one of the things you must have encountered very early on, and you subsequently went on to distribute them, as it were, later in your career, must have been registers, because that becomes quite an interesting issue, doesn't it?
1: Yes. What, what, with hindsight, what I noticed is that the the areas I was very interested in, in terms of of of, of the legal principles underlying what I was dealing with, actually all joined up later on in life when we came to deal with blockchain, and it was. It was quite amusing at how fast a slight introduction to me of blockchain, in terms of its its storyline, brought to mind at least 10 or 15 legal projects I was involved in, in terms of legislation, all starting with the registers. And with shipping, I was exposed to one type of register, with companies I was exposed to another. I started understanding the importance of registers within the legal system as well because registers become the point of of connection between an asset and the legal system in a way that draws rules to it that work or don't work or that make life easy or not or that make a successful outcome emerge or not. And we see ownership being the result of registers, but we also see potential assets existing because of a register. And in blockchain, what we started seeing immediately was that the power of the register being becoming digitized and becoming uh, designable through smart contracts and through code is actually the most powerful part of that vision. In other words, having the, what you can call digital assets, you can call them crypto assets if you want, or you can call them, you know, not necessarily currencies because that, that brings a lot of trouble with it, but that an asset is reflected in a register which is immutable and which is global and which can be the basis for ownership, transfers, security, all in one place, and that it is reliable, Across all the systems of the world and it can be used for major economic transactions in real time because now the register is no longer dependent on an intermediary but is self-standing is an an incredible basis for 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 development and innovation and it with me it all started with the shipping register and then it moved to The aviation register, and then it moved to the company register, and then we went into securitization and so on. And you start, you know, and derivatives, and you start seeing that there's always this intermediary who has a register of assets, and it it becomes the kingpin between all the parties because they all rely on this entry a book entry, a digital book entry in a register. And then we went into the securities markets and so on, all built up on this securities register, which everybody relies on and everybody uses. And then we jump into a completely new dynamic, which solved the major problem throughout, which is this big problem of the avoidance of double spend. And that problem was a problem that hogged us all our lives. In other words, you have an asset on on an exchange, and you transfer it, and someone else pays your money. But until the transaction is closed on the register, there's a risk that someone can sell the same asset for a second time and the third time and the fourth time, which which created a tremendous amount of insecurity. And, you know, the famous period of T plus two or whatever an exchange might operate is such a massive risk, although it doesn't seem to have created massive fraud. But solving that problem through, through a methodology of a register really, really uh, opened up at least m- you know, my excitement about looking at that part of the law which needed to be fixed and seeing the technology which now could fix it. And just before, sorry, just before um, the law was actually uh, starting in the direction of blockchain, I was involved in a project called the Century Registries Act. And this this is something which was going to be uh, innovative in our country. And blockchain could have come to its rescue big time. But unfortunately, the current government wasn't interested in continuing the project. But it was a simple project which would bring all the registers and all the laws. And I'm pretty sure all your countries have, we counted 27 in Malta. I'm pretty sure that in most countries you have probably 27 and more. But to get 27 registers, all these property registers from IP to land to ships to aircraft to companies you know, way. to securities, all in one law to deal with issues of ownership, possession and transfers and security, all in one law would have created, you know, one massive leap into, into a new world of certainty. Then blockchain was standing there and just sort of gobbled it all up because it could handle it all. So, you know, the, the future is exciting in terms of registers, which, which were the first thing I started dealing with when I was there and I 22 years of it.
0: So that's fascinating altogether. You were talking about these issues of singular registers. You were talking about T plus two you were mentioning just a moment ago. I've got to give myself a bit of credit here because that was my original book in 1999, which I bore the viewers with every few weeks. Capital Market Revolution, published by the Financial Times. And actually at the time, it talked about how we needed to have a better clearing mechanism for T plus two settlement. And it was laughed at for a few weeks, and then it became the norm in the course of uh, the near future. And actually, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to read a little bit more of Max's thinking, then try this book, DLT Malta, which was Thoughts from the Blockchain Island, which was edited by the excellent Joseph de Bono, uh, aided by myself a number of years ago, because it became, uh, of course, the hot thing at that point in time was the Blockchain Island. Now, if you've got a question for Max, ping it to us on any social media, wherever you're watching this. I'm quite interested, Matt, because we've now reached, of course, we've talked about registers, we've talked about the legal system, you've flirted with it a couple of times, you've mentioned risk, and you've also mentioned the word about derivatives. And here, I think it's quite interesting, because obviously, we've got the whole derivatives business set against not just securitization law, but also derivatives law and netting law, in particular, in Malta, if I'm correct.
1: Yes, um, and that also started in the shipping period of my career, where you know, we were handling a lot of ship finance, and typically derivatives started coming in as part of the security or the arrangement of, of the financing of ships and aircraft. And uh, at the time, you know, these were, were unknown realities. I mean, we just knew nothing about them in Malta, and they were even only starting to develop in Europe anyway. Um, and so when when ships started getting registered here, and you had uh, an interest rate swap or a, you know, some, some other kind of derivative which was needed in the structure, and we had to issue legal opinions, we, were, we had a major, major problem. So you know, not only were we dealing with security, which was English law security, which nobody was ever taught about at, at our universities, or that any courts or lawyers knew anything about because mortgages were unknown, except in our shipping and aviation law, But we also had these add-ons to the loans, which were basically governed by the civil law. So we had security under English law and underlying contracts under under civil law, sorry, mortgages under English law, security under English law, and the underlying loans and transactions were civil law. So where did the derivatives fit in? And it became one of of the first challenges of innovation. the mortgages law opened up the law of trusts, which was you know, wonderful research and extremely inspirational. But the law of derivatives was a bigger problem because our civil law prohibited uh, gaming and uh, betting, as it still does. And therefore, the assessment of derivatives as a game or a bet, more likely a bet, uh, became an obstacle to the legality of the contract. And You know, it it needed not only specialization in shipping and aviation, but also awareness of where our central bank was going. We we saw saw Malta starting to trade, possibly buying and selling and storing oil products and so on. And uh, the central bank started becoming interested in, in swaps as well. So the time came where I had the opportunity to actually promote the amendment to our civil code to permit derivatives to take place. And the research showed that most countries in Europe had the same problem. They were not solving them. I then found out that the law of Belgium actually did address the issue and managed to convince the authorities here that we needed to introduce this for our shipping law and practice to grow, which they did. And then the shipping uh, industry started growing and mortgages started becoming more known and Malta became more known. And today we are literally the largest flag in the European Union, maybe fifth in the world. But, you know, it's, it's grown into an enormous business. And Impressive. that showed yeah. that using English law security for ships, having law which was keeping up with the times of financial innovation, all these things actually produced the growth and the economic success, which which was intended from a project of this type.
0: Interesting. So when we're talking about uh, economic uh, success and growth, we've got two great questions have just come in on LinkedIn. Um, Someone on LinkedIn, it's a user, I can't tell where they're from, but I suspect they're from a small island perhaps somewhere. They're saying, will a unification of registers give a financial center an advantage, for example, through blockchain?
1: Yes, I believe it does. And that was one of the exciting points about blockchain, which I discovered. In other words, if you have a unified register which covers all forms of assets and interest in assets and transactions in assets, you are going to simplify the legal system, create certainty within the legal system, reduce costs of transactions, and you're going to reduce the time involved in transactions, which is going to multiply the efficiency of the legal system in a country I wouldn't say tenfold, I can't guess how much, but my gut feeling is that it's going to multiply by a 100 times. In other words, you, you can't imagine. I mean, I, I can appreciate it because I come from a civil law system. The bureaucracy around the civil law system is so massive and the time it takes and the, uh, the formalities it takes and the cost involved is tremendous now you might say yeah but you're you're an idiot lawyer what are you going to do you are going to kill all the opportunities for lawyers and notaries working in this field my answer has never been that by making a system more efficient you create more opportunity you kill what is inefficient and you create an efficient solution and everybody does better anyway and everybody will do better including lawyers you know it doesn't make a difference just the legal system will work better so my view, yes, is that the unification of registers and the rationalization of the rules around the registers through blockchain, which then creates the certainty, the immutability, the speed, the cost efficiency, and the, and the uh, security, uh, because of the nature of the technology, will be a massive boost to every single country, whether it is big mm-hmm. or small. Um, I think civil law systems need it much more than the English law system because the English law system is prone to, to choose more efficient solutions than the other.
0: Interesting. Really, really interesting answer. And actually, that sort of dovetails with another question we've got that's just come in. Thank you very much, Max. I'm here this evening with Max at Ganada. We're talking about, well, the whole gamut of the legal industry and all of the innovation all the way through to... Distributed ledger technology, Racy May Mendoza. Good evening, Racy. It's lovely to see you. What advice would you give to a small financial center trying to establish itself for commerce? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Malta story is a good example. Um,
1: being a small financial center means you have to appreciate your role and don't try to pretend that you can play a bigger role than you actually can. In other words, for you to be useful in the the story of global trade, you must play your part. And as a small financial center, with the current difficulties that exist in many legal systems around the world of the type I have been describing, in other words, slow processes, uh, inefficient and costly methodologies and so on, small financial centers can come in and actually produce solutions which are very, very effective to create better legal, uh, more secure legal positions and more secure legal rights for players in commerce. Now, the world has changed a lot since the time when I started working as a lawyer. And today, we have major, major concerns with um, tax evasion and money laundering. And therefore, the smaller financial centers need to adjust to that reality fast and I don't think they are doing it fast enough. And one of the things that I believe you know, Malta has been slow on is that when you see a trend developing in terms of what is desirable as, as society develops and as systems develop, you must always try to be ahead of the trend rather than behind it. And as a small financial centre, that is even more important. Uh, when a country doesn't uh, preempt the trends it then runs into reputational issues of a major, major uh, level, and, and that can be deleterious to its future. So, so you know, on, on the points of tax evasion and money laundering, clearly small financial centers should move completely away from the lack of transparency. From the zero rates from the discrimination in terms of who benefits and who doesn't from these kind of incentives, from playing a game which is short term that this is not the strategy which is going to build a solid uh, economy so so I think the the approach has to be moved ahead of the curve, especially where it involves integrity and, and solidity in terms of of choices that are being made and and also to work well within what is happening among the bigger systems to create efficiencies where the bigger systems are unable to do so so the, the, the if i had to choose i would i would choose all the level playing field rules and you know make sure that the small financial center doesn't become you know the loophole within the system but then use the small financial sector to create efficiencies, which help the bigger uh, legal systems to cope with the demands of efficiency, which business expects by reducing cost, mm-hmm. by reducing cost and increasing speed
0: and certainty. So it's interesting. You reduce you reduce cost, you increase certainty. You use the velocity of a smaller financial center being more flexible and thank you very much racy may mendoza for that great question really really interesting and i can't help but feel it links back also to the previous question which was asking about unification of registers because you talk a lot about aml kyc ubo which is all the, well if you only have to make one declaration of who you are and prove your identity in one fell swoop you're very welcome racy may thank you for that great insight max you're saying so you know It's a super question, because actually, if you do only need to do one UBO and one set of AML KYC documentation for each person, rather than having to do it 10 or 11 times, admittedly, it has to be applied to the different registers. Yes, that is one of the hopes. Mm. Mm.
1: That's one of the hopes for the future. In other words, when you consolidate the information in a secure manner, that can be relied upon by everybody, then we will stop wasting all the resources and the time that is taken up in compliance. And the saddest thing of all is that all this compliance then has to be handled by other people. And it, and we just don't have the resources in the world to handle what we've created in terms of the compliance demands. And blockchain and that kind of technology, and, and specifically what we call RegTech, is the only way we're going to be able to cope with the monster we've created in terms of compliance information. And and this this someone has to change the game, the, the rules of the game. Someone has to you know intervene somewhere. We we have to match the management of the information and the data coming in terms of compliance with the resources we have to analyze and 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 organize it. Because at the moment, there's this enormous mismatch between all the information being collected and the resources to analyze it and and extract from it all the information we need to control crime. And if we do not keep them in parallel, we've got this mountain of information being collected, but nobody to analyze it, or very few resources to analyze it. And that mismatch is going to cause the biggest problem, because it's going to stop the world in terms of efficiencies and yeah. it's going to lose credibility in terms of the agenda because you know it's become it's become impossible to handle. So Rectech, which is one of the innovative technologies built, built on, on blockchain, smart contracts, artificial intelligence, is to me a world saver coming coming towards us slowly with all the problems that it might imply, because there are many, but at least it's it is a hope for the future
0: thank you max and i'm here this evening talking to max ganado he's the original founder of ganado advocates he recently retired he's a consultant to the firm we're talking about innovating commercial law financial law all the way through to the blockchain this evening if you've got a question ladies and gentlemen send it across i'm very interested actually max though in one thing i mean you've just talked you've just passionately talked about what we have to do in order to be compliant but the huge burden of paperwork that there is you talked very much about you don't want to have short-term tax advantages necessarily as your usp but hold on a second i mean playing devil's advocate here some people might say no actually you and i can actually point the figure directly you max ganado have been very heavily involved in trusts now, aren't trusts this problem at the epicenter of this thing where you're hiding the money of the 1% and keeping the poor downtrodden? Yes, I mean, that's a good point.
1: And, uh, you know, then you have to obviously look at what you mean when you say trusts. There are two angles of sight. You either go to the offshore model where trusts are products, and that's a disaster for the world. I think. It's, a, it's a disaster for the concept. Very, very sad this wonderful concept which created a potential for such innovation within the legal system in order to do things we couldn't do before. Now we can do them as a result of this device. And mixing them up is is what is causing the problem. In other words, yes, there is a problem if you look at trust as a product for tax evasion. It, it, It was used and is used by some systems in that way. But the problem is that that then messes up the reputation of wherever trusts are used. Now, trusts are extremely powerful tools in the financial services industry because they enable intermediaries to hold assets for the benefit of beneficiaries through a device which enables them to operate as owners of the asset with all the powers of an owner to bring about efficiencies which would otherwise not be available. And I can give you a simple example. Where you have a bond issue, for instance, which is secured by some underlying property. If you had to try to create security on land for the benefit of the bondholders, in our legal system, you'd have to create a notarial deed where each bondholder would have to appear on the notarial deed and accept the benefit of the security. And if you had to try to imagine a thousand bondholders actually taking that security to secure their bond in the presence of a notary, all being identified by a notary, and and you know, you would obviously realize that it is absolutely impossible. So Trust came along and combined assets into a pool, combined multiple persons into one trustee and rendered the transaction of taking security for thousands of bondholders feasible. Now, that's a small example, but the point is that there are many, many, many extremely important and efficient uh, outcomes of using trusts, which ultimately produce the financial services uh, reality or the financial industry within the common law countries, like London, New York, uh, Australia, Canada, And and some other centers, you know. In civil law countries, the same couldn't happen because of all these formalities without trusts. You could have agency and you could have representation and representatives and powers of attorney, but, you know, they don't work in the same way. So the the confusion between trust as products, which allow for tax evasion, and legal devices, which allow for massive innovation and efficiency. know has to be appreciated and the projects i was involved in in terms of introducing trusts into the legal system started in the 1980s as an offshore trust act which didn't last more than you know three or four years and then was you know subject to sunsetting basically because as malta approached the european union we could see that that kind of model was obviously not not going to survive into the future. Unfortunately, it it lasted more than it needed to. But the second iteration of the trust approach then occurred in the 1990s and that was provoked by the investment services industry. You Mm. cannot have an investment services industry which operates efficiently without having trusts in the system being assumed by custodians, by fund managers, by you know, stock brokers and so on, because they couldn't operate within the formalistic system with a lot of powers of attorney and limited mandates and this sort of stuff. So you needed solutions, trust or solutions for the whole industry. And that's where I am more uh, convinced
0: that trust are needed in the system, not the product type. No. Okay, that's a great, that's a great answer. Thank you very much. We're talking about innovating financial law through to blockchain with Max Ganado, who was the founder of Ganado Advocates. We've got two great questions actually have come in here. So we've got a question from YouTube. uh, Guyan Melvin Kalaor. Hey, good evening, Guyan. It's lovely to see you this evening. How is blockchain changing the banking industry? That's a a, a very big debate. I mean, not
1: only is blockchain becoming the platform upon which the money equivalent type of digital assets are being created, but it is also eliminating the need for intermediaries. And that is probably the biggest impact we are seeing. When you allow peer-to-peer transactions on a platform, you eliminate the need for someone to be the intermediary in a payment chain. And that is probably the biggest risk to banks today. Um, a lot of income is derived by banks in being intermediaries in financial payments and also the, the custody or the retention of money and, and security systems. So when you eliminate these elements, because they can be done on a peer-to-peer basis without an intermediary in the middle, you create a massive threat to to banks. Now, Obviously, banks are very important and they have their their functions in terms of lending and borrowing and the whole financial system. And now they even have an extremely important function in terms of diligence and due diligence on the holders of funds within their systems, which is one of the weaknesses we find in blockchain because in decentralized and autonomous structures or or digital platforms,
0: it's extremely difficult
1: to imagine how you can comply with the money laundering due diligence requirements, not having an intermediary to do that job. And that is where RecTech comes in again. And I am quite confident that within the next couple of years, we are going to have automated due diligence processes, which are going to be 100 times powerful, 100 times more powerful than a compliance department in a bank uh, and is going to be able to control the source of funds and the and the, and the pathway of funds much more than any bank would be able to through a compliance department. And not only that, it's not going to create freezes on transactions until due diligence is carried out. It's not going to create freezes on assets which are not yet identifiable. Because the ability to manage data in relation to each single digital pound or digital euro or digital dollar is going to give the power to the technology to track the movement of every single bit of currency at every point of its life. Now, that could be a nightmare from the point of view of individual privacy and individual liberty. And this is the big debate that's going on, where money becomes a monitoring tool on everything you do. But, you know, one has to take a view and one has to deal with the problem, not eliminate the whole of blockchain because of that risk. This is like trust. You don't eliminate all trust because sometimes yes. trust are used as a product. Yes,
0: definitely.
1: Because there's the positive in everything. Focus on the positive and build on that, and build the the defenses against the bad, and and control the bad. But don't just throw you know everything away as has been happening for the last two or three years in relation to the blockchain, only because of Bitcoin.
0: Yes, I mean that baby, the baby bath water. Repurchase agreement keeps going wrong with regulators all of the time, Max. And and actually, we've got a lovely problem to deal with in the last 10 or 12 minutes of the show because we've got three excellent questions to ask. Thank you very much, Guyan uh, Melvin Callowar. And that was a super question. Lovely to see you on the show. Do drop by again next week as well. Now, going to another LinkedIn user whose name has not appeared, they're giving us a, uh, ah, Guyan. you're very, very welcome. Amazing thoughts, Max. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome all together again. So, anonymous LinkedIn user here we've got. At what, if any, are the strongest arguments against using a blockchain model in the banking ecosystem?
1: I, I I, don't think I've come across any arguments other than the disintermediation of the current players. In other words, you know, the current players are obviously... Um, very concerned about disintermediation and, and for obvious reasons. If I had to choose a point of, of risk, which is something we dealt with in the Maltese law when we're dealing with the project here, is the, the fallibility or the potential de- defects in technology. In other words, the, the idea that technology is perfect is obviously wrong. The idea that technology cannot have mistakes or actually be used, in a, in a criminal manner, in other words, being designed with, with malintent it, it has to be accepted. In other words, people who, who argue that we're creating a new trust system where we trust the technology and not human beings is nonsense because technology is made by humans and is potentially defective. Now, what we did in Maltese law is we said, okay, if you're going to deploy technology onto a society, you need to go through a process of making sure that it is as good as it can be and has no defects before you deploy it. Now, in a a centralized world, people would do that because they'll be afraid of liability. But in a decentralized and autonomous environment where people do not own or control a platform, there's a very big risk that the technology will be defective and it will lead to harm and nobody will be able to correct it. So, the biggest argument against blockchain underlying the banking ecosystem is its potential defects. So what we did in Maltese Law is we said before that technology can be deployed publicly, you must get the technology certified by the local technology regulator, which we created, because these don't exist in any country, and we were one of the first countries to create a technology regulator. And the technology regulator has to certify the technology before it can be deployed. And to certify it, you have to have two elements. Number one, there must be a registered systems auditor who clears it, at least as far as he could. And the second point is that you have to have what we call the technical administrator. And in brief, it's a person who basically can switch it off if there is a harm being caused by the technology like money being stolen, or if there is a breach of the law. And someone has to be able to intervene at that point. And our research showed us that most of these platforms don't have this feature. And we introduced it into our law as a condition for the technology to be certified. Now, the certification at this point in history is only voluntary. In due course, and we're already seeing signs from the European Union, coming towards the ideal situation which would make it mandatory. But Malta, at that point, two years ago, was unable to impose it on anyone. And this takes us back to the small island state. You know, who is Malta? Malta can impose what they like. Nobody's going to go for something which is mandatory if they don't like it. But when the world changes and suddenly it becomes mandatory everywhere, then the efficiencies of dealing with the certification and the Uh, Issuing of the systems audit and, and the methodologies to ensure that if there is a breach of law or there is a loss being caused, someone can intervene, become very, very important for the reasons
0: I explained before. Fabulous answer altogether. Thank you very much, Max, and thank you for that question. I did realise it was Christopher Messina. A voice was in my ear telling me it was you, Christopher. Lovely to see you, Christopher Messina. Twice a guest on this show. Catch up his fabulous discussion we were having about rare earths and much else besides just last week, ladies and gentlemen. You can catch them all on IPO Vids YouTube channel. We're here this evening though discussing financial innovation through the blockchain, legal innovation through the blockchain. with Max Ganado and we've still got another two questions coming up. While we're on the blockchain theme actually and banking, let's take a question from Ruben in Ciclan. and welcome Ruben, it's lovely to have you with us this evening. Banks are regulated by the central bank. Who will regulate the blockchain in payment systems? Well, very difficult. Um, what's emerging
1: are technology regulators. In other words, you know, Malta has its own, but in the European Union proposals, we're starting to see the concept of a technology regulator in each country, and possibly even a European technology regulator as an umbrella regulator. So the the difficulty then is that not all blockchains uh, are regulated for purpose, such as banking. So we are regulating the technology of every blockchain because of the risks I explained. But as you move into a regulated sector, then you get the specialist regulator. So you get the financial services regulator teaming up with the technology regulator. And that is where you then get regulation of a purpose or a substance based on the business being run. And that model will probably be the model of the future where you'd have people who are experts in banking, as regulators of banking, merging with the technology regulators. And the, the interim period of having them both working together is critical because we are in that dangerous stage where the financial regulators don't know enough about technology, and the technology regulators don't know enough about banking. And this is a dangerous time we're in. We are going to run this probably for 20 years until both uh, or all of us, merge into the ability of understanding the technology in each of our sectors and dealing with it in a natural way. I mean, this applies to lawyers big time, obviously, because lawyers still don't get technology, and there are very few uh, lawyers who are actually focused and understand the underlying technology. So
0: so the world
1: is in, in this dangerous phase where there is a gap in the middle that nobody will be able to recognize the risks and the risks of, of, of dishonesty and criminality or the risks of financial uh, outcomes which are unexpected, you know, but, you know, this is the this is the picture that is starting to appear.
0: Well, actually, thank you very much for that question, Ruben Indajikian. That's a really, really fascinating issue you raise. But let me just replay part of this conversation back to you, Max, and ask you a quick question about this, because you started by saying that essentially we have a problem with civil law because civil law will stop you doing things and stop you innovating and now 55 minutes later you're telling us that it's a good thing to allow the european union a civil law jurisdiction to have regulators who will effectively regulate technology and i'm not quite convinced that that necessarily is is i mean i understand we need safety but i'm actually not sure given the precautionary principle does that not offer the, the danger that we end up being held back in terms of technology.
1: No, I I, I think this is a phenomenon which is hitting all legal systems. Uh, you know, the, the emergence of blockchain and artificial intelligence has stumped all the legal systems of the world. And if you, you see what England or America or states in America are doing, you're going to find exactly the same sort of approach. Uh, not at the moment, but there are directions that you can see. Um, Ultimately, it's an issue as to whether you're going to have the resources to deal with the regulation, which I mentioned before. In other words, if RecTech doesn't develop, then what we are doing is going to be a big waste of time because no amount of human resources is going to be able to handle this. And the idea of a regulator coming in in the traditional sense is also one that needs to be reviewed. In other words... Thinking of a regulator as a group of 200 people in offices, checking uh, returns, which are being given by uh, players in the market, is, is, is nonsense. It's not going to happen. The, the methodology is going to be data capture on an automated scale that you know nobody in an office is going to be able to perceive. And the outcomes of that are going to be reports which emerge for the problems that are found. By the technology, which are then of a scale that can be handled, and we must pray that we are going to be able to handle the amount of issues that technology will pick up. But the way the law will deal with this is is no longer a system where I am an inspector; I will inspect your stuff and then pick your pick at your defects. And you know, if you don't tick the boxes, you're going to be fined and so on. It's, it it is actually going to be technology which is going to stop you from acting automatedly before you even are able to cause the breach of law or the loss you are causing through your Mm -hmm. malfeasance or your criminality or your negligence or whatever. And, And this jump between a legal system which is operated by humans on the basis of analysis is going to change completely. And... And I mean, we can't even imagine it, but the, the automation and the effects that that artificial intelligence with automation and decentralization is going to provoke is going to take us into a completely different world of law enforcement. And I I I am that this appeals to me to a certain extent because you have to match product with product. In other words, action with action. You can't have technology being controlled by, by a human being. You have to have technology controlling technology. And and then you have to be sure that the technology is fit for purpose on both sides, both the reg tech and the banking tech or the fintech. And if you get that right, then it's going to be a much better world to live in because a lot of criminality will not even be able to happen in the first place. A lot of tax evasion will not be able to happen in the first place. So you will have preempted the breaches of law before they even happen, because you won't be able to do them. Because the legal tools in the market will no longer enable you to do that, you'll obviously be able to go and shoot somebody and kill them, because technology is not going to control that. But a vast amount of technology is connected to to money and financial systems and so on, and therefore the potential for what I'm saying I think is, is, is truly possible.
0: And I think, you know, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, Max Ganado, it's fantastic. You, you've told us how your legal career was not was a given, and effectively, you know, you might have been an architect. Well, I think certainly the law gained on that front. Um, who knows, though? You might have made an impact on, on Malta's skyline had you been, had you been able to uh, be an architect instead. A really fascinating IPO vid. I learned so much. Max is really inspiring. Thank you very much, Marianne Madeira, for that comment. Thank you also to all the people who've been asking and making comments today, not just Marianne Madeira, but also a couple of LinkedIn users, Christopher Messina, our serial guest on this show previously while we were discussing innovating financial law through blockchain. We also had comments and questions from Racy May Mendoza, thank you very much Racy May, Guyan, Melvin, Kalaor great to see you on the show Oh Robert Finney, I'm so lo- sorry I think you've come in late but I'm actually going to stop and, and, and allow you to have a question in just a second, um, thank you also to Ruben Indajikiam for that uh, magnificent intervention as well, we're going to be back with Lynn Martin next week but I'm going to leave the last word tonight because we've got one legal brain coming out of London advisor to the Astana for financial center Robert Finney and he wants to ask you Max can those enforcement systems regulate the process of technology development ensuring due diligence done and controls in place or go beyond that and stop faults? Well,
1: right, obviously a, a very good comment in the sense that you know it starts always with a human and therefore the human person who is the developer is always the person who's, who starts the process and develops the technology, which eventually reaches a scale of deployment into the public sphere. So, you know, technology certainly cannot stop that. But if the process of deploying the technology is going to be subject to equivalent technology, which is going to pick it up as it is being deployed, then I think you then have an equality of arms on both sides. In other words, the, the, the developer will de- develop his malware, but as soon as he deploys it, there's going to be the equivalent of the police force, so to say, that's going to pick up the malware and use the same intelligence and, and wisdom or whatever we want to call it, to control the deployment itself. So, you know, you, you, this, this might sound like a bit of science fiction, but that is the world we're moving to. We we as humans are losing the ability to control what we are developing ourselves, and unless we use the wonderful tools that have been given to us through our intelligence to fight the battle, we we're, we're going to lose it. And so we have to try to support the development of the tools to fight the battle. And uh, Patrick invited me just to conclude with a couple of comments my biggest concern at the moment which underpins everything that is happening around us is the scourge of misinformation and the misinformation that is happening and the confusion that it is creating it is it is not only stopping people from looking positively at things which are good for humanity and which can help us deal with the problems we're dealing with. This misinformation is even underpinning, uh, or destroying the possibility of legal systems operating into the future. And already we see, I mean, forget the biases and the suspicion of lawyers as a profession. It's been the same since the Roman times. You know, we, we've heard that, you know, too many times. But the danger is that the credibility of legal systems can be manipulated through misinformation so easily in our current era. So if there's one thing that I think we need to innovate on in law, is how to deal with misinformation. And if we can find an answer which is democratic, which is respectful of human intelligence and freedom, you know, if we could think of a solution to that, I think, you know, we're on the level of saving the world as much as climate change is important for our future. This is a storm which is equivalent. The misinformation, the conspiracy theories, the distribution of misinformation through social media. I mean, it, it is mega, mega proportions. You, you, we've lost the fundamental foundations of our society in terms of you know, developing value systems, belief systems, legal systems, you know, which are at the basis of all, of all our societies. So I really think the next challenge for
0: law is that. Max, we have been discussing innovating financial law through blockchain with Max Ganado. We have looked at the challenges. There's an optimistic world out there, and it's all going to be assisted by the enabler of the law, which is so good to hear, rather than the rather negative codified nature of no you can't do that and the preventative method at the same time i think there's a beautiful strand of conversation just opened up in the chat which is great to see you again Plum and lovely to hear from you today the main vehicle to ensure software quality is the open source model and I can't help but think that perhaps an open source world is something which could also help us particularly with disintermediation. That's a conversation that's going to have to go and run and run I think during the course of uh, the course of the next few weeks ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be back next week with Lynn Martin. Tonight we've we'll been discussing innovating financial law through blockchain with Max Ganado. Remember the power of the law. Remember join up your registers whatever your financial centre works wherever you are in the world, it's been a joy to listen to these insightful moments with Max and indeed our exciting distributed ledger future. Max, thank you very much. My name is Patrick L. Young, wishing you a great evening wherever you are in the world. We'll be back next Tuesday. Have a great week in life and markets. Don't forget to check in with Exchange Invest during the course of the days. And if you want to read a bit more about our digital future, don't forget victory or death all about Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto finance, and indeed, the fintech world in the future, written by yours truly. My name is Patrick L. Young. Have a great week in life and markets. This is the end of IPO vid number 30. Good night.